I think nobody is kind of the core to the record. When I hear it, I think it sounds like just a total mindfuck. It represents fully where we were coming from. I'm so happy that we didn't just rest on our laurels. I took a fucking gigantic hit of this thing and I was gone. You're experiencing the most incredible emotions ever. I was crying. everyone and welcome to a very special edition of Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast where we take you through the Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue one song at a time and what else would we possibly cover this month but nobody. The first taster of the brand new Avenged Sevenfold album Life is But a Dream that is out on June 2nd. This is the definitive look at nobody. We're going to tell you all of the stories, answer so many of the questions that you might have about this song and the album, and break a whole bunch of world exclusives. This is the true road to life is but a dream. If you want to pre-order it, and believe me, you do, a7xworld.com is the place to go and pre-order that album. Death Bats Club holders, got first access to tickets to the upcoming shows and exclusive variants of the album. Make sure you join us in the Death Bats Club page because it was the place to be for the unravelling of the puzzles that led us to Nobody's release. You are all both impressive and terrifying in equal measure in that Discord. So make sure you are part of that and make sure you're subscribing to this podcast. Please give this show a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. It helps both the band and the show. Pre-order the record because it's amazing. Come and see a show. They've announced shows at the Forum here in LA and Madison Square Garden in New York. There's been some festival appearances. Keep your eyes peeled. I'm sure there's more where that came from. And that is all I have to say. I am your host, Bees. It is an honour to be here and it's an honour to be telling this band's story. And this is the definitive story of Nobody. <laughs> 2,328 days. That my friends, is the amount of time that we have waited patiently, most of us, semi-patiently, for new music from Avenged Sevenfold. And on March 14th, 2023, that streak was finally snapped by the mighty, planet-swallowing, universe-humping, nobody. We'll start 
with the question that I think is on everyone's lips. What made nobody the right choice to be the first all-new Avenged Sevenfold composition released to the public in over six years? For me, um, if you look at, like, um, if you were to take, like, a black hole of, like, the record and all the fringes of it, I think nobody sits right at the center. And I think it sits right at the center because the riff is huge. We are experimenting with tones and um, how the production on it, but it also, like, listen, nothing on the record sounds like anything else on the record, right? They all have their things, but nobody for me sounds like this solid. It's very depthy in the in the lyrics. Um, it represents fully where we were coming from in terms of like uh, the the concept and the um, sort of headspace we are coming from and so it checks a lot of boxes for us and i think the the riff is so killer that i think that it kind of will drill into your head like like a worm and i think and it also without trying to be proggy it's got a very interesting arrangement and it's got a seriousness to it that i think um it just shows that we're not trying to give you like the flashiest thing on the record or the most ear candy-esque thing. We're trying to give you something that's meaningful and weighty. It's very weighty. I think, yeah, it's the center. It's it's also, as Matt said, I guess it's the center, uh, kind of the weight to everything. To me, I've kind of felt throughout the demoing process, everything from the first time I heard that riff, um, I kind of had an inclination that that was going to be the first showing. It just seems like the obvious choice and not in a bad way. It's just, it's the obvious choice on the, on the record, in my opinion, for the first kind of um, dip your toes into what this record is. You know, um, it's different as it always has been. You know, um, we are, we branched out uh, creatively again on this one and uh, nobody started off with, you know, just the sound of that guitar. People describe that riff as extremely heavy. You know, I've heard people say, oh, it's like Pantera. And and when I hear it, I think it sounds more like just a total mind fuck. It sounds like, you know, when I ate too many mushrooms and um, I thought I had a buzzsaw behind my fucking right ear. Well, the first time I heard the riff to nobody, I had a feeling this will probably more than likely be the single. There was something about when Brian played, you know, just that, one bendy note and it sounded like you know a million guitars and organs and i don't know or orchestral sounds and and one sound bank i i knew you know we were going in the right direction um so i yeah i wasn't surprised that we uh landed on nobody because um even the reaction after it was mixed and there was definitely an element of surprise there, but you know, they were, it was, it was a very positive reaction. So, but yeah, I do agree with Matt. I, I think, I think nobody is kind of the core to the record as far as, okay, there, it still sounds like avenged yet. We are pushing the envelope again. Sonically it's, it's pretty heavy to me. It's, it's the perfect, first single it's sort of got this gravitational pull 
of all the different elements on the album. And it kind of pulls from, from everything. So you get a good understanding of where our heads are at when you listen to that song. And there's, like I said, there's a ton of depth and it's really, you know, it's not fast or heavy or shredding. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of all those things without having to go out of our way to say, look, we're, we're shredding. Look, we're doing this. Look at us, you know, check us out. Check us. It's more like, Hey, we want to write a great song and it fits so well within the album. And I mean, trying to pick a first look after so many years of not having an album is, is always a tough task for, for any band, but this really just encompasses a lot of the stylistic elements that we were pulling from, you know, musically. Uh, I know fans get scared when we say there's, you know, R and B roots and, and stuff like that. Cause people are just, Oh, I want metal. I want this. It's like, well, we've given you metal, you know, Pantera gives you metal. Metallica gives you metal. Go listen to those albums. They're fucking great. For me, it checked all the boxes. It's it's a huge, massive sounding song. Um, it kind of epitomizes, maybe not in the exact tone and texture, but it epitomizes the new evolution of us. But it also bridges the big rock and roll um, arena to stadium vibe. You know, it's just that, that groove. It's a timeless groove from... Uh, Zeppelin to ACDC to the Metallica's like, um, and to kind of reinvent that groove, um, we felt like was pretty, was pretty massive. It definitely in, intrigued us from, you know, progressive types of guys, thrashier types of guys, or even like weird artsy avant-garde things like myself. Um, this still, uh, satisfied those, those boxes. I also feel like the chorus is hooky. And like, to be honest, it was always kind of going to be the single, um, but it got more cemented as uh, Matt's vocal approach kind of evolved. Because initially, you know, we had the riff and I thought that I just, and I hate writing melodies that fucking follow guitar riffs. It's like a pet peeve of mine, but I just thought it was baked in. I just thought it, it had that hookiness, but I, I didn't think that Matt could sing that over and over. So I thought maybe we'd try to redo, you know, make it right for our really shitty take of um, Unbound the Wild Ride where we end with kids singing. I thought maybe if we try to redo that Jay-Z hard knock life, it's a hard knock, but let's, let's just crush it. Let's get the right kids on it. Uh, da, 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 like have this sort of group vocal that's like Jay-Z hard knock life means the wall or something like that, another brick in the wall. Um, and as he started singing this thing and writing, and we were, you know, kind of writing lyrics and doing all this stuff, he came up with this lyric that after so many songs, lyrics were already finished. I thought as weird and crazy and unapologetic as the rest of the stuff was, I was a little taken aback at I'm a God. It's like, damn, dude. That's fucking crazy. Shed and wait as I'm coming undone. All that's left converging as one. I am the sun. 
I am the sun, yeah. I'm a god. I'm awake. I'm the one in everything. It was just so massive. His voice is just such an an incredible place and time right now. Um, And it just really carried it. And then overlapping some of those things that that we had the ideas for to have this kind of counter part to it the juxtaposition between the first chorus and the second chorus where it gets a little melodic more emotional and the first chorus is tough um as those things came together it was it just it gave me chills all i ever was has been Everything on this record, um, we were really looking at it as an art piece and like just kind of a, a representation of where we're at in our heads and a bold, lyrically bold, sonically bold um, arrangement wise. And I don't know if there is anything on the record that would be the ear candy thing. I don't know if there is anything that's like, oh, that's obvious. You maybe miss out on the more depthy fan or the person that really wants to you know, dive into what the record's about. If you put out a single that doesn't really represent, and I know it's hard to say because this record doesn't have that, but being the most honest and true and putting it out there in a way that like really represents what you're trying to say after this long just seems like the most obvious thing because there's nothing normal about this record. There's nothing that's going to just kind of float on by and be like, oh, okay. Um, so why not hit them with something that, um, has that weightiness and that depth and that, you know, I think when people first hear this, it's going to be a little confusion, maybe a little like, okay, I got to go back and see what I just heard because listen, it's very repetitive while being very proggy. It's very tension filled while being very release. You know, there's all these like sorts of moments where it's like, why are you doing this so long? Oh, okay. And then it opens up and then it's, and then it's like a, a left turn here and a left turn there. And why did you put the solo at the end? Why did you, you know, like so many things. I, I don't know how you can take this listening for the first time without kind of going back and going, okay, well, what did I just, what did I just go through? And I think that's, I think that's interesting. I think as artists, we, I don't, I think that you have to kind of challenge people and, and, and give them things that they don't know they necessarily want. And um, I think this really interests us. And so I think it will interest them. And I think this is a perfect representation because like I said, it's not so far on the fringes, but it's got enough things to make you kind of turn your head and go, huh? And I think that's, um, that's good. is tracks and we are making our way through Avenged Sevenfold's back catalogue on this show telling the stories of the songs that you know and love and we frequently discussed the fearless nature of the band's songwriting and it takes us into all manner of unique places if you've checked out the episode so far you'll be well aware of this we're always talking about cinema and composers and outside influences we've spoke about western movies you know a lot goes into each avenged record and i think that that means that each record 
is different in its own unique way. You know to expect the unexpected at this point, but Life is But a Dream is, in my opinion, definitively the furthest that the band have thrown themselves and their audience with their music, their art and their creativity. It is a broad and bold and exceptional record. And in the pacing together of this album, one would imagine that there must have been a point early into the writing process where the collective members of Avenged Sevenfold knew that they were making a record that, in all honesty, might freak people out. I hope that it does. My fear is that it won't. That's, that's all you want to do as an artist. Like, I could not plug in to an app. Zach could not plug into an app at this point. Matt couldn't plug into an app. Johnny can't like none of us can just plug in in an app, turn it up to 11 and write old Avenged Sevenfold riffs or old Metallica riffs reinvented at a certain point, those things end. And even though they can kind of manifest themselves into guitar sounding parts, even the last couple of records, it kind of stay, it's especially the stage it came from different inspiration. It came from uh, playing around like we've had discussions of, of you know, the, the evolution of having your own gear and sample libraries and fucking with that and then translating unique things into, into guitar. A lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily sound like guitar to people, you know? Like, there's a lot of guitar on the record. I mean, it's, a, it's as guitar-centric of a record, if not more, in my opinion, it's it's deeply um, more guitar oriented than any other record. It was it was focused on it was obsessed over. We just had tools and a mindset that could expand um, what was previously kind of thought <laughs> that this instrument kind of does. But that's that's what it is. And and when you're proud of the music, I don't think it uh, it sounds like. It's not just a, a bunch of weird sonic behaviors and then the, the songwriting and the melodies are now weird sonic behaviors. Matt's singing. He's singing some, some of my favorite melodies that I've ever heard. Some of the most proud melodies that I've ever written. Some of the most proud melodies he's ever written. So when you're that proud and it's that different, I have no, I have no fear because I, I believe it's a great record. I believe it's a very listenable record. I believe we actually achieved the old Nirvana um, ethos, and that's to essentially sing lullabies over over these things. You want it to be so approachable from a melodic standpoint. That doesn't mean always. You can go off the deep end and do some some weird shit, but for most uh, intents and purposes, I, I want it to be an incredibly singable record, and it absolutely is, and the riffs are just as blistering and brutal as any of our other ones. It's just you just don't know what to expect i knew we were going in a different direction just by the dialogue but in our you know frame of mind we were just trying to write um a better record you know a better record but it wasn't set out to be to me a different record we just okay let's let's explore here um and then fast forward five years to last october when i finally started hearing the mixes and I guess when I heard the record in its entirety, yeah, I, I then it dawned on me like, wow, okay, this is an Avenge record, but 
we've completely either lost our minds or, um, you know, made something that is, you know, maybe incomprehensible to some people. Um, yeah, not until I heard the mixes did I realize that, you know, it was, it was on a whole different level of, you know, musicality. One of the sayings I know it's been thrown around on this record, uh, internally is you have to know all the rules before you can break them. And, um, I think that's true and it's a good, I, I, but I would take it a step further and just say all those things that we've learned to have just become a part of us. Like those are stages in our lives and this is the new stage. <laughs> that's it. You know, it's like, this is the new stage of our lives and I'm so happy that we didn't just rest on our laurels and go back to making another self-titled or city of evil we easily could have done me and brian were exploring deeply um in psychedelics throughout the last few years and one of those things in particular was 5meo dmt and when i had a very tough experience in like you know type a personality drop uh, you know ego gets completely demolished you see yourself kind of you know, leave your body and uh, we can get into that more. But one thing that I came out of that realizing was that life is so short. Don't put anything out unless it's bold. And bold was the word that we were using. And, and bold was like, don't just play within your genre. Don't like, yeah, there's a huge difference between Waking the Fallen and City of Evil, but they were both playing within a genre. Yeah, it was different, but it was all within like a, there was a sphere there. And on this record, we didn't want to be a part of any of that. We wanted to just put out art that just, if we saw something or heard a sound, we wanted to figure out how to get that, but not with our normal tools, right? And if there was a feeling, we wanted to try to extract that feeling in audio, but not with our normal tool shed. And so when you look at like the guitar tone or the, the riff in the guitar tone, like for something like Nobody, that's just a droning thing that we had to figure out how to melodically play between major and minor and to make it interesting. But at the same time, we didn't want to actually make notes with it. We wanted to just have this thing drowning, almost like Terminator 2. And then we're going to play melodically with it. But it was basically this psychedelic experience that took us into this be bold. Don't, don't do psychedelics and make Pink Floyd. No, do your own thing and make your own stamp. There's more chats about DMT and evolving human consciousness and how that fits into both the record and nobody later on in the show with Matt and Sin. But for full disclosure, I heard nobody before I heard the record. And while I knew I was into it and that lead riff had kind of burned its way into my soul on impact, I also knew I had to listen to it more to get to grips with it, right? There's an awful lot going on on this song. In fact, I text Matt after hearing the song and it reads, where in the almighty fuck are we going to start for the tracks episode? Like you guys, I'm sure, when you heard this, it opened your imagination wider than the Grand Canyon as to what may be waiting for us on the album itself. What delights are on their way. Does nobody represent the shallow end or the deep end of where we're going on life is but a dream honestly i feel like they're getting thrown right in the middle of the pool in 
nice warm water compared to what the rest of the album offers. I don't feel that this song is so far outside of our realm. And I guess that's because we've lived with it for for a while and we've, we've heard it and, and it feels normal to me. And to be honest, everything, the weirdest thing about Avenged Sevenfold from day one is that nothing has ever felt weird to me that we make. Um, you know, when we put out a little piece of heaven, you know, it wasn't even going to be on the album. It was going to be on a EP because people thought it was too over the top. And I was just like, it's a fucking great song. What do you mean over the top? What's different about this song than any other song? It's like, it's just cool. And, you know, we've done stuff with country influences and it never felt different. I was like, this is a great song. You know, pedal steel guitar sounds fucking amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Um, to me, nothing is shocking when it comes to us and music. And I get that it is to our fans like, Whoa, what the fuck are they doing? But to me, it's just like, no, this is just what we do. Like, this is, I feel like this is what they're going to expect. So I don't feel like it's jumping off into the deep end. I feel like it's very comfortable for our fans and I'm probably totally dead fucking wrong. I feel like, hey, we're giving you something, you know, we're giving you uh, training wheels with this song compared to where the album starts and where the album ends um, and everything in between. There are a lot of um, edges to this record and wild things. Everything from the song links to the way the songs are put together and track listed to the arrangements of the whole record are different than anything we've ever done. And this song has a lot more in common with like, again, it's got like that Zeppelin drum and it's got the big riffs. I think I wouldn't say it's the deep end because that would mean that there's nothing wilder on it, but there is, right? There's wild fringes. But I would say this is the core of the center of it. But not, but, but I'll also say that nothing on the record sounds like nobody because of the concept, because of the the depth of it and the and the weight of it, I would say this is like the weight, the, the center of the record for sure. Nobody. You know, when we write music, we don't just set out to try and be different for the sake of being different. We try and create something that doesn't bore us as human beings. And the truth is, I mean, completely, and I, I'm going to speak for every member of, of our band. You know, there's so many great bands that we've listened to and continue to listen to and new bands that come out that do new and creative things. But it's truly few and far between. There's so many bands that are, I mean, I hate to say it, but it gets boring. It gets um, super repetitive and... I find myself, even when I'm listening to music and, you know, put my headphones on and scrolling through what I want to listen to, it, it's become very, very hard to find music that hasn't already been done or bands that are willing to, to take a risk. And, you know, funny enough is I, I listened to the little Yachty album, the, the newest one, um, Black Seminole, and, you know, he, he wasn't fully on my radar. You know, I, I knew who he was and I've listened to stuff before, but but I liked the fact that he was taking like a Pink Floyd, almost heavy handed Pink Floyd influence and applying it to what's considered rap or hip hop. And it's no longer rap or hip hop for the most part. It's just fucking music. And for me, all of a sudden I became a fan of that. And there's people that are going to be turned off by it because they just want to hear him rap over heavy beats of gangster rap shit or whatever. 
But the truth is, is more people are going to be turned on by great music. Great music comes from all corners. It comes from, you know, the Stevie Wonders of the world and the Billy Joels, as well as the Metallicas and Iron Maidens, um, you know, to the the great pop writers. And the, I mean, there's so much to, to pull from. And I feel like a lot of the hip hop artists got bored with the same old beat rap over it, you know, same kind of lyrics. So they started experimenting with music they might've heard growing up in their household or, you know, church music or R and B music and incorporating these, you know, ideas into their sounds or even hearing a band like Pink Floyd and incorporating it into their sound saying, what the fuck is this crazy shit? You know, these guys are fucking crazy and this is awesome. And that's what makes music great to be honest. And we're no stranger to that. We love to pull from music that we love that keeps us on our toes. We don't want it to become boring. We don't want to just write crazy music for the sake of being crazy. Cause there's bands that do that too. And, and you can hear that. We just wanted to make something that was true to ourself yet kept us feeling satisfied as musicians. Look at what's going on in music. Be respectful of what's going on in other genres, whatever, whatever it may be. Look at what's coming up in music. Stop being the old man saying, well, I don't like the music today because it's not as good as it was in my day. Well, that's, first of all, it's bullshit. There's plenty of great artists still creating music all the fucking time. That is not going to end until the human race ends, probably. So as long as that's going to keep going, look to the kids. Look to the new music. I've, I've had... Uh, artists like Maggie Linderman on my podcast, and th- and then there's other artists like Willow and uh, and other people who are blurring all these lines of genre. And to me, it's I'm just so happy I'm I'm at a state in music where we're not pigeonholing music. To me, it's there is no genre. It is music. That's the one thing that is the common ground of it all. It's all music, and it's all different people creating art from it. You don't like. I don't like the. I've never loved the labels of stuff. You know, and that's not. I mean, I understand why they're there. It's not like I'm poo-pooing everybody and you know, I've always hated labels because I'm, I'm an anti-labeler, you know, whatever the fuck that is. No, it's, it's just I don't like confinement in an art. And, um, and I, th- I just think it shows the new generation of, of music lovers just truly don't care anymore what, what, the, what the title of the music is. It's not what it, not what it's about. Do I like it or not? And that's what it should have always been. As I've gotten older, I've realized that I, that I like artists in all genres, but I just like really good artists and a lot of really good artists. They can just kind of tread above the genre that they're in. Right. Like you could hear a million Daft Punk wannabes and they'll, they'll feel like they're locked in a genre. Then you put on something like random access memories and it just lives above it. The same way Sergeant Peppers lives above whatever was going on at the time. And um, there's just these certain things that we've gravitated towards. Kanye is a good example. He just lives above hip hop to me. But I don't think we were necessarily capable of it early on in our career. I think it's something that you have to work yourself into. And and it's a taste thing. You know when it's not quite. And maybe you're maybe you think you've thrown out all of your your genre rails, but you still live within them. You don't really know how to break through them. Um, and on this one, it just feels like when I listen to the thing in whole and I listen to nobody, but like the whole record, I know that it lives in a spot different than everything else we've done or anything else in this genre. And I know that it doesn't fit anywhere. And that's what excites me about it. I listen to it and I just go, this is its own thing. And it's going to live and die by being its own like work and 
you know, we don't even think about it much, but I will say that we have a lot of um, influences still, right? Like those drums, we were trying to get modern Zeppelin. And then something on the back half, the drums in the back half, um, we were trying to get more of a progressive, like tight feel. Um, but when you think about, well, well, what about that, like kind of trappy hi-hat, right? Well, we were trying to get that organically, what hip hop guys do, you know, synthetically. We were, so we were going back and we were overdubbing because you can't get the Zeppelin feel with tight mics, right? So we had all these things set up where Brooks would go in another room and just record the trappy stuff. And then we would go back into the big room and record the big stuff. And then, um, so it's one of those things where we were, it's all these different influences, but not in a way that anyone's done it. Right. And that's what makes it different. And then, you know, staying away from samples, staying away from anything that's not organic and just living and dying by the tones that you get. It might not sound as expansive as some of these records or this because they're, they're blowing everything out. And this sounds like a band still. And that's, that was very important to us because you want to feel the, the heart and the, the tones come through. These are all things that are just so important to it because if you, if you fudge any of that, then all of a sudden you get something that could have been really cool and it turns into something that sounds like everyone else. Before we drop some news that is going to be a talking point for Avenged Sevenfold fans all over the globe, let's talk about this lead riff in Nobody because when you hit play on this song, the opening riff is monolithic. You heard Shadows compare it earlier to Terminator 2 and someone on Twitter referred to it as sounding like Godzilla's roar and I haven't been able to shake that since so kudos to you if you came up with that but whatever way you look at this riff it is such a bizarre sounding beast. I was just experimenting with a lot of um, unique tones and and play, things put in a chain that never go in that chain and uh i mean later on down the line we can kind of get a little little geeky on it maybe but um i want to keep it a secret tone forever but (laughs) but we but but we won't so it started with that and then i mean within two seconds of that the melody came right after like literally um everything was played um within a minute of each other and i mean when you have that tone in your hands it's it's like you'll fuck around with it and maybe solo and do some stuff, but but really, uh, it just begs to to be played so minimalist. It needs to breathe. It needs to just be the power that that it is, and it's a fucking incredibly powerful tone, and it's a hundred percent guitar. And yeah, I'm super super proud of it. I mean, it seems so purposeful at this point, but it was so accidental. Tuning down my E string all the way down the A, way past any normal human being would ever down tune much of anything. Um, certainly with a six screen guitar with no added cushion for the pushing, <laughs> meaning the string gauge and shit like that, um, which gave it an edginess, which is why I don't really tune down more than drop D because it starts getting baritone softer to me. Whereas I think like the heaviest Metallica moments, the heaviest Pantera, certainly Pantera moments um, are in D. But with the help, that added tone that I had constructed, it just 
all that just begged me to not do much. It was just, and the construct of everything just fucking moved me. And and we built a whole song around that because to me, it's one of the most poignant riffs we've ever written. It's different. It's guitar. It's an air raid siren. It's beckoning people to come see what the fuck that is at a festival, uh, in an arena and, uh, on the radio, on the different music platforms. I mean that it just two little notes. I honestly, at one point thought, uh, sin had just written that with a, with a synth. And then he's like, no, it was the fractal with the, with the guitar. It's just a guitar effect. I was like, well, that sounds really fucking cool. Um, way to go. <laughs> he really just allowed the tone and the, the sound to play front runner instead of trying to come up with something technical or, you know, he just was totally fine with that. And that's what made everyone really excited about that riff is because it is very, very simple. Um, it's very nuanced. I mean, actually playing, it's a little bit tricky because it needs to be played perfectly with the effect or else it doesn't give you that buzzsaw type vibe. And, you know, when you put headphones on and you put that in the speaker, it really kind of takes you out of whatever you might've been listening to before and brings you to that guitar riff that almost doesn't sound like a guitar at all. And the fact that we're all okay with that is a true testament to what this album is because, you know, great bands have always played with sound and that's so important. And we could have taken that riff and we could have just put a heavy distorted guitar on it and bent the string a little bit and made it sound heavy and then came in with the drums, you know, do, 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 do. but we chose the completely different route to do something different. And I think it gives a listener a completely different experience. Okay, everybody, I am going to need your full undivided attention for this next part. As you are all aware, you let us know in the comments section. We listen to you. It has been over six years since Avenged Sevenfold released their last full-length album. When you hear... Life is but a dream, I'm sure you'll understand, as I'm sure this episode is already starting to form in your mind, there is just a cavalcade of exploration within this body of work. But for at least a decade, I would say, there has been a general question mark over the necessity for artists to record and release full-length albums. In fact... When we look at Falling in Reverse, who are, of course, supporting on the upcoming arena shows, that band have become one of the biggest in rock music over the course of these last few years, and they've done it by releasing only singles and videos that have all manner of ideas and exploration within those frameworks. And I saw that that was something that Shadows was giving Ronnie Radke credit for online, and justifiably so, but I had to ask then if the plan was always for Avenged to make an album at this point in the band's career. And here is your full, unabridged answer. No, only because... So, yes and no. Um, we have to do a record to get... To do our last record on Warner, right? So we can't just tell them we're going to drop singles. Moving forward, 
all the contracts that we've got with people now are not album based. We told people that we might not ever do another album again. Um, we may do three songs at a time, EPs, singles, or albums. Now, I don't believe in, you know, sort of making a decision before the decision needs to be made. All right. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, we're only going to do singles because that's where the world, you need to like, what Ronnie's doing is so cool is because he's doing his own thing, but we're not going to chase the ambulance. So like, what's our, what's like the way this record comes out will be different than what anyone else has done. But just because somebody does something different and cutting edge doesn't mean everyone needs to fall in line and do that. They've already missed the boat. You're late. Sit down with your group figure out what you want to do and do that. And it's either going to work or it's not, but you're never going to get, you know, you're never going to get the credit or what you want, what you want out there by chasing the ambulance. And um, it's a, it's a term that our, our manager Bino uses. Don't show us analytics. Don't show us what's happening right now because at the end of the day, we need to be doing what's best for us and we can change the paradigm. Right. And so what Ronnie's doing is cool because he's doing his own thing and it's obviously worked for hip hop. I don't know if that works for us. So I, I can't make an answer right now, but we might do singles. We might do NFTs. We might do EPs. We might do records. If we feel like we have a record in us, we'll do a record. All right. And it's just, it's just one of those things where you got to let the art kind of guide you. And if you, and if you do it any other way, then you're just, you're just trying to game the system and that we're not trying to game the system. We're trying to do what's best for the, the art. It's very simple. We just keep releasing it. You keep making it, you keep releasing it and you see, um, what, what happens? Um, I don't know that I ever want to make a record ever again. Like I can see the point. I like having a collection of, of music to listen to, but there's a different process. You can, you can release singles and then put them, put them together as a record when there's a, a sufficient amount of stuff done. And maybe during that process, after three or four songs, they're out. Um, it might give you a, a, a gentle nudge that, hey, you want to, to do another record. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm completely open. I know that there's never a sacrifice of art, and that's why time is of the essence of, of what we do. Because I, I can't be a shit father. I can't be absent. I can't be as emotionally drained um, as certainly this record did to me um, starting May of, of last year. This record just fucking kicked my ass. Just absolutely kicked my ass. I'm getting my health back, all these different things. Um, it, it really, really, really kicked my fucking ass. My sleep has been abused and I, I have to refocus. But but I never stop making art. I mean, I'm playing guitar when I'm in and around my family and in and around building um, the sonic part of the, the live show and everything. Um, but again... Um, I, I'm going to come into things with an open mind and, and explore and see what things are uncovered that will push a certain direction that feels right at the time. Yeah, don't shoot the messenger on that one. I am merely your humble servant asking the questions that you want to know the answers to. I am your host, Bees. This is Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast, and we will be talking to the guys a whole bunch more on the road to the release of Life is But a Dream. But before its release, one of the biggest talking points and certainly something that you guys have had on your lips and on our comments section is about... 
the length of time that it took to create life is but a dream. And one of the other elements that I think is worth noting is that this is an expensive record. We're going to get on to some of the more human elements later on in this episode, but this is just not an album that can be made on Garage Band. So when we boil that up, let's ask Sin just how much time, expense, and energy went into this behemoth of an album. We're just very fortunate this was the perfect place in time. We were going to take a bunch of fucking time off anyways. Um, we, we have young kids. I mean... This album is older than my daughter. <laughs> it was three and a half. Um, my son, most of his life, he's five and a half, and most of, no, he's almost six, and most of his life was spent with me, you know, fucking around in a home studio, in my luckily at home, you know, and guys coming by and doing some stuff. We had time to reiterate. We had time to work on all sorts of different things from new techniques. I mean, when people hear Matt on this record, they're not going to fucking believe it. I mean, this is, he's as diverse, just without plugging into a weird instrument or a microphone. He's as diverse as he's ever sounded. It's the most eclectic singing I've ever heard personally on a record. Um, maybe Mr. Bungle might give it a, a run for his money, but we weren't trying to make crazy sounds. You know, we were just singing the parts intended for the parts and my god it was freakish how how vocally that evolved and transpired in the studio um the guy works relentlessly he's the hardest worker i've ever met and he's as vigilant and fucking next level as it comes um i i'm floaty i come in and out um but my brain is is always connected to art and even now where I'm building you know a big big part of this uh this live show sonically and how to execute it now I didn't think I'd be spending six months long fucking days you know in solitude trying to figure out how how we communicate this piece you just don't think about that type of stuff you're just so fortunate that you have the time to do it we didn't race out the minute that we were done with this fucking thing and take it on tour and do a bunch of shit. This is, we're building monumental amounts of infrastructure to do this whole thing right because it doesn't just end in the studio. I think taking your time and, you know, exploring as much as we did as a band on this record, you know, I think it speaks for itself. However, I also believe in parameters because we still could have been working on nobody right now if we didn't if War, you know warners didn't give us a, a deadline so i believe in in that so it's kind of a tug of war between the two for me where you know you could beat something to death and then just realize okay the idea i, I had a year ago i should have trusted you know instead of going down the phil specter road of insanity um which we do i would say that a lot of people might overestimate the cost of this um, because we demo stuff out at home and it sounds pretty goddamn good, but yeah, you can't taking it to the next level, the right, exploring the right microphones, exploring the, the right outboard gear. My, my point to all that is that I think that it's very approachable to do something unique and different. If you just buy, you know, the cheapest sample library and buy some unique pedals and, and Axe effects is, 
uh, by fractals is an, an incredible um, part of our process now. Uh, you can you can do some stuff, you know. Our vocal chain isn't the craziest vocal chain. It started off that way, but when Matt started fucking jamming in the studio, um, he's holding one of these through some stuff that I got here and just fucking rocking out in in front. Like we got him out of the ISO booth as fast as possible, and that dude had a fucking mic with a red solo cup wrapped around it, fucking going crazy in the studio. So again, there's some money to it, and I'm sorry to digress, but I, I really want people to feel like this record um, is approachable if, and this is my big thing with music, if you spend the time, spend the time to get it right, spend the time to explore your art, spend the time making sure that when that song is done and it's sent to people that you are as, a, as proud of it as the day you fucking conceived of it. And I don't, I think that's a little bit of a lost art. I don't hear bands reinventing themselves the way the Beatles did. Um, how many more times are we going to be able to fucking play riffs just straight plugged into a fucking, to an amp? How long, how much longer is that going to fucking last? Um, it died with me. I can't do it. I'll never do it, do it again. <laughs> you know, I don't think guitar music's dead. I think it's, it's, um, it's having a reawakening. Um, but you, but you're going to have to be a part of that movement. So you, you got to keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. I do not. In fact, I flat out refuse to play favorites. But I do have an almighty boner for the drums on this song. Something that I'm sure you were all dying to know. Um... The drums, though, have been something of a point of contention for people. And this is to, if not validate, it's to at least acknowledge that this is a different sound for the drums, uh, not only for Avenged Sevenfold, but how it's traditionally used in rock music, which we'll get to in a second. Brooks actually told me this story about playing nobody for someone for the first time, and they were unsure about what was going on with the drums. One of Matt's good friends uh, heard it. He came out to the mixing studio back east, and uh, the first question was, hey, you know that, like, click track sound, which was the the tight, like, trap hi-hats? He's like, you guys are going to omit that, right? That's not going to be That's not gonna be on the mix, right? And it just kind of goes to show, you know, like what people are normally used to hearing, which is not that. They think, wait, is that a mistake? Or am I listening to the demo? So... To hear comments like that, you know, it's like, okay, well, we're, yeah, we're throwing, as you call the proverbial rule book out the window and, you know, let's, let's see what a trap beat against a unique guitar sound sounds like with Matt's vocals. So I, I you know, it, this just this amalgamation of sounds is, is what I'm excited about. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> The hats, to me, are kind of, you know, the, the heartbeat of the song where that's what drives the, uh, the groove there. Um, and I had never, you know, took on a beat like that before or had a electronic um, state of mind at that point. My relationship with Trap was pretty non-existent until I 
uh, joined this band. I mean, Brian and Zach, I think, were the ones that turned me on to some um, artists. And uh, so, yeah, when nobody was being written, we they were listening to, you know, some hip-hop uh, trap artists. I think Travis Scott was, was one of the artists that had a beat that, was uh kind of inspired this this song um but you know i i love drum and bass i love listening to electronic music just because it's you know to to hear that approach gives me ideas to create something outside my you know conventional box um so yeah there was there was definitely a few moments nobody being the the primary inspiration with the trap beat and also when we recorded, you know, not to make a detour, when we recorded uh, my parts for the isolation between drums and cymbals, we actually, um, I did the hi-hat part on a separate track. So that's what gives it that tightness. If I played it with the drums, there would have been bleed in the mics. So we just wanted to make sure we got the hats as tight as possible. His turnaround fills on this song are fucking insane. The way that he comes out with the, I mean, if, if you hear, it's in the first verse, that sub pad. Listen to this one on good headphones, a good sound system. There's so much. If you're going to listen on your phone with your shitty headphones or something like that, you are going to miss so much. Maybe listen to it that way first if you want to. But if you find it, you're, you're, you're like, where's this, where's that? It's on the better system. Go go listen to it on a better system. I promise you. There's so many little things, especially on the low-end frequencies, on this entire record and specifically on Nobody, that you will miss if you don't have a good sub in it can hit those low frequencies while keeping it clean. You don't just want it to be loud, people. You want it to be clean, too. Anyway, so there's that hit that he's... I mean, he's doing a fill, and it's a, and it's a sub hit that, that that's on, like, a, a trigger pad. And it, I love it because it sounds like... It's a mid, it's a mid sub. It's not all the way down. It's like a mid sub and it just like pokes out. I love that shit. I love when we, when happenstances like that uh, come about in his plane because he does just, it's effortless for the guy. I feel like, man, he just, he just sits down and he just knows his way around the kit. Is there's, there's no, he and each limb has its own mind. I swear. On the outro to this song, I did use uh, a different kit, and you should have seen our videographer um, taped everything as he does per record. And um, I've never been in a live room where there was this many drums. I mean, it was insane. Um, I had literally three drum sets set up, one in the ISO booth, two in the main room, and you know, I was afraid that I was going to trip on a drum and like break my arm. There were so many different uh, drums there. Um, but that was, you know, the beauty. And luckily we're at, you know, a stage where we're able to, you know, bounce between three different drum sets. And I, I've never been a part of a recording where I was able to really take my time with the sounds and with Joe Barisi involved. I mean, he's just a sonic wizard um and Brian too you know he's he's a drummer as well and you know we had a lot of conversations on how we want to approach each song so yeah it, it's it's it was cool by the time that we got to the outro where you know Brian and I kind of go into this progressive part 
to um, just change, you know, the sound completely. And with the main part being, you know, so defined for like the first five minutes of the the song, by the time that we get to the outro, it's a nice disparity um, sonically to, to go into uh, something completely different. So, and I, I, you know, you play different too. You know, I was coming up with ideas on the spot, you know, because of how the drum sounded. So that was inspiring too. You know, when you talk about like my, my plane and stuff, it doesn't feel like it's, I guess it doesn't feel that different to me. But I will say the cool thing about this one is it's so seemingly basic, but it's really not. You know what I mean? Like you just, you have that one riff that is pretty constant. You have the groove that's, that's constant. And for, you know, three of the four minutes of the song, that bass is just hanging with the kick drum. Just hitting that note, just coming around for three and a half minutes. And then the last minutes when I start breaking out a little bit. And that's not a conventional bass run slash solo. I mean, it's almost like a dueling solo with the guitar there. Um, it's not too repetitive. Most of the times you have a motif and a bass line, even a walking one as a motif kind of sticks around. This one kind of just keeps going, just keeps going, kind of more like a solo. Um, but it's not shreddy like a solo either. It's just, it's it's in the pockets where it needs to be. In that low setting, you're more felt than heard. I know this by the majority of the population because, I mean, I hear bass in every other artist. Like, I'm, my brain locks into it. But I know that that's not the norm. So... It's subtle differences. Like, you'll notice it on the drum kit more, even. And even that's a subtle difference. Like, people are just now realizing that there was three different kits played on this song. And uh, three different basses, for that matter. That last bass part was on a four-string. And um, uh, the rest of the song's on a, on a five-string, because it's a drop A. I don't know about you, but I am an absolute sucker for when the horns come in on the chorus of Nobody. It really puts a little bit of extra lean into your shoulder as you swing to the groove of that song. And when I first heard it, Get Buck by Young Buck came to mind. But it turns out that we have to look to the skies to get a little bit closer to the influence of the sound of the horns on Nobody. Here's Johnny Christ with an unbelievable story about how John Williams kind of influenced the sound of Nobody. We've always strived to do a live orchestra at every chance, at every album we've had, live choirs, live players this one was it was challenging to make that happen though because of covid and uh, most players are under union contracts so they had a lot of loops and protocols to go through and it, it put a delay on this on you know this track if we're talking about nobody in particular so we waited until we could get into uh the star wars uh studio over at sony the one that john williams used the night before and then we used it uh, to do this song, Nobody, the very next, the very next night. He was, coming, he was doing the tracking for, I think, Obi-Wan um, at the time. And uh, 
I'll tell you what, that room sounds different. There's a, I never knew that John Williams also used, used the room that much. Like, cause it's just, it's so obvious when, if you listen to the horns and th- that sounds marching bandish with all the other vocals and guitars and shit going on, totally, totally get it. Marching band. But if you listen to those tracks by themselves, you think Darth Vader. And I don't even just mean because we wrote it that way. That probably wasn't even close to an inspiration for those horn parts. But we recorded them in that studio, and they kind of fucking sound like those horn parts. I'm like, these are fucking rad. Like, it's part of the room. We mic'd those so close because we wanted the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And that was very influenced by um, Blood on the Leaves, Kanye West. His are fake, I think. But we wanted to do a real version of that where it's just it just hammers you. We wanted to make sure that things were going to cut through in the way we wanted them to cut through. It couldn't just be get us the horns because you're going to get this kind of far away sound that's really hard to control. But if you get it right inside there and you have them hitting it as hard as they can, almost to where they feel uncomfortable and it's blown out, like, like okay, give us that because you don't know what we're going to do with it, but this is what we need. And I think this is just experience. You have to know what you want to get. And you have to tell these musicians that are professionals that sometimes they're going to, they need to break the rules with you. They were so uncomfortable, right? Like they're like, this doesn't, and we're like, we are creating tension in a way. And then by the end of it, they're like, oh, we get it. Let's stay in that room and start talking about the orchestral movements within Nobody. Once the strings start to kick in for nobody, there's a real change of pace and direction that is incredibly satisfying. And I want to tell a story here, a little bit of Hollywood bullshit, right? I live in Los Angeles and I was at a party and I was being introduced to somebody. I have to be very diplomatic here. I was introduced to somebody that worked on the show Westworld. Now, Westworld is one of my favourite shows of all time. Stay with me on this. It does come back to Avenged Sevenfold, I promise. Well, the last shot, or one of the last shots in season four, is this beautiful landscape shot. And the person at the party was complaining that they'd flown all the way to Mexico to get this one shot. But that shot is beautiful and it comes out of the screen at you. And sure, you could have stayed in Los Angeles and did it with a green screen behind you. And sure, it would have looked great. And there's a lot of budget in that to make it look great. But the organic nature of that shot, that art comes through the television at you and when the violinist comes in on nobody that is something that is so real and organic if you have great sounding headphones you can hear the string player struggling to hammer out those notes as fast as they can on that section it is a really great moment and I wanted to ask about the need to go that organic route. Uh, the truth is being able to witness it firsthand and s- stand in the sound studio where, you know, John Williams had recorded 
just about every one of his um, famous movie scores from, you know, Star Wars to Jaws to standing on the exact spot where Judy Garland had, you know, sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow and having 78-piece orchestra play in unison with feeling and emotion and being stressed. That part's very hard and very fast, and they're and they're playing it in the hearing the the bows on the strings in real time and standing in that room and being overwhelmed by the sounds that you're hearing and having those recorded and putting that on your album, it gives you a feeling that you could never, ever replicate by programming, you know, on your keyboard, onto your Pro Tools, on your computer. You know, you can make stuff sound good and you can get the point across, but you're never going to capture the true magic. I remember that was something that we had written, but it was very influenced by, there's a scene in Django Unchained where it's like the KKKs, like on the horses all going around in circles. And it was just so dark and, and just haunting. And it's like just pure darkness that it's like hatred. It's, it's just, this thing and it, it really influenced us. And when we wrote that part, do, 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 it just had to be deep and low. But then what we wanted to do is really mic the guy so you could hear the actual bow and hear that and you could hear his inconsistencies, right? Even though we're telling him to play it perfect, that's just that's just a human being playing it. If you fake that, like like it makes my skin crawl even thinking about what it would sound like. It would be perfection. It would just be like, yeah. And even at the end, you hear it kind of like, we want to get a little bit of a swell at the end, but it's a natural swell. It's not anything, there's no ramp up on Pro Tools. It's like them trying to like have some energy. And I don't know, like, listen, it's one of those things that you can explain it to people all day, but they have to feel it. And there's no way you're going to get that feeling out of, something programmed or synthetic. At the end of it, you listen, you go, oh, you feel it in your heart. You feel like people played that. And some people say they don't care, but I don't believe that. I think they do. I think they just don't know what they're listening for. I think it will resonate with people, maybe not right off the bat, but later on when they go and compare this album to whatever else has been released in the last several years. And they go, there's a reason why I keep coming back to this album. There's a reason why I like this album. They may never know what that reason is. And maybe somebody will study it or maybe, you know, another band 20, 30 years from now will look back at this album and be like, we're doing what we do because Avenge did what they did. And and that's kind of the hope, you know, Um, I, I don't get overly excited when I hear bands that are all doing very similar things, it all sound completely perfect that, you know, everything's triggered to perfection and it gets to the point where it's just like, I, I really wish you would just fuck this whole thing up and sound like shit. And I would actually like it a lot better. And so we come to what is one of the themes, if not the central theme of life is but a dream. We're about to talk to Shadows and Sin about their exploration into the worlds of psychedelics, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and the exploration of the self and everything that comes with that particular journey. But 
all of us involved with the band and telling the story of this song and the things that we are about to discuss want you to know that this is not about glorifying the use of any substances or telling you what is right for you. The dissolving of the self can be done through meditation and there are some really good ideas about the lessons found within the subconscious that are explored in Rick Rubin's new book. If you haven't checked it out, it's called The creative act but before we really get into it with matt and mr gates here's zach who had quite an interesting take on that particular subject matter you know people find themselves at, at different points in in life and all the experiences that bring you to where you currently sit you know there's times where you question i mean anything and, and everything and inside your own mind and your, your own soul, you know, uh, our lives have changed a lot since we were younger. We've been through a lot of things. You know, we have families now, we have kids, we're raising these children and it's a difficult task, but it's amazing and fulfilling and rewarding. And I, I just, I feel like they probably, you know, just wanted to experience something that gave them a different perspective. And, you know, that's what people have, have done drugs or whatever in the past, just to, just to gain a different perspective. And there's times, you know, where sometimes you just use the perspective that you're given that you're currently living in. And that's good enough. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. My life is just this wonderful ball of insanity at all times, you know, with dealing with my band, which is a bunch of beautiful, crazy souls and my family, which is also a bunch of beautiful, crazy souls. And sometimes you just need to step outside of that realm and feel something differently you know, I just encourage people to find a different perspective. And that could be as simple as someone that sits on the computer all day reading a bunch of negative bullshit. Turn your fucking computer off and go for a walk outside. Go look around the world. Put your fucking phone away. That could be the, the most life-changing perspective and it could completely change your entire universe. We're actually just going to play you the raw footage of our conversation. So I had asked Matt about the themes of the album, if there were any kind of central ideas and themes that formed the narrative of life is but a dream. And it naturally rolled in to the conversation about DMT and about psychedelics. And so here is that absolutely uncensored talk. This was a really introspective time for us in terms of the last six years and just trying to find out what's important. You know, the last record had some big issues in terms of taking on, you know, the Big Bang and taking on AI and taking on all these things. And at some point, you have to just sit with yourself. And when you sit with yourself, it's uncomfortable. And um, we're born into this world without asking. And then all of a sudden, we're stuck with somebody us, um, that we may like or may not like, or there be maybe things that we love about ourselves and things that we don't love about ourselves. And that's a really hard concept to grasp. A lot of times, you know, the world that we live in, ego is rewarded. You know, the more you can climb up the mountain and kind of step on others to get there and you get this, the golden prize, whatever it is, and then you're rich or you're successful and then you're lauded by everybody and everyone, you know, this is like the world we live in where it's like this this tiered system of like, 
but it's not healthy and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the correct way to live. And so a lot of self-exploration went into this sort of like thing that me and Brian did. And, you know, when, when, when I was in that state of like no ego and the state of nothingness, the state of um, nobody, that's what it all comes from, right? It's like the state of um, the state of one with the universe and the state of one with everybody um, and everything that had ever been created and that I existed before this and I'll exist after, just not in this ego-filled state of like ball anxiety, you know, have to get to the top, which none of it matters. That's where all this record came from. It came from, it also came from things like Albert Camus and The Stranger. Um, you know, autopilot, nothing matters. Um, like it doesn't matter if you do your homework today or if you never do your homework, in the end, it's all wiped away anyways, all right? And so like, how are you gonna live this life? How are you gonna be happy? How are you gonna... And so things like being bold in the music, don't, don't be on this planet and not make a stand. Like, don't let consumerism drive this thing. Like, just be an artist and put things out that mean something to you and they will, they will resonate with other people. So there's so much inner sort of exploration going on in this record in every song. And this is the center of all of it. Nobody. This is, this whole thing came from a West Lang painting where there's this, just this ghostly horse with a skeleton on it and a couple skeletons in the sky and just says nobody. And I sat there and I was like, nobody, dude, that's, that's that. And when I had that experience, I was like this, I am nobody. I'm just, you wipe away the ego and, and I'm no, there. I have no identity. And, and I, and I loved that place. I loved it. I felt like I was at home. You know, all the pain was lifted. All the anxiety was lifted. The, the, I was one with my family. I was one with my kids. I was one with my wife. I was one with my friends. We were interchangeable. And so that's where this thing came from. That's where this whole record kind of rose out of. Uh, as far as where to go with that. Um, so what you're talking about there, when it comes to dissolving one's ego and all, all of that kind of thing, do we get into the role of psychedelics on this song or would you rather it for the record? We could do it for the record, um, but this would definitely be, who knows? Th this one. All right, let's just roll one, with it then. Yeah, because this one, um, listen, and it's so hard, right? Because I mean, I've told this story to a couple people when they're listening to the record and it's, it comes with such baggage, right? Like when you talk about psychedelics, um, 5-MeO DMT to me is just a medicine. It's, it's the way it was taught to me as being a medicine. Um, it's not something you go out and party, you're gone, right? There's no, you need to be with a shaman. Um, I remember I knew that when I took it that I was going to be freaking out because I knew I would be losing myself. And when I took it, that's exactly what happened. I saw, I, I was, I rose above my body and I saw the shaman putting me back on my back and I, I watched myself. And I was like, you took too much, you took too much, you took too much, trying to get back in. That was the struggle, right? But once you broke through and then you realized you had died, then you realized there was no you to begin with. That's where all of this, this whole thing, if you look at the lyrics, they, to somebody that doesn't know what that is, it could seem very, the, the lyrics are actually very on the nose, <laughs> but they seem very not on the nose if you don't know what, what this is that we're talking about. And, it, and so my biggest thing with this record is wording this in a correct way and educating people on what this really is and not, not just acting like we're promoting a bunch of drugs because 
it's too important for that. And it's really hard to do that because separating those two things and we, and we look at what we talked about earlier, when the only thing you can take out of an article is a butt wiggle and leather pants, all you're going to take out of this is new album uh, influenced by drugs, like psychedelics, wacky, cool. And so it's tough, right? It's tough to talk about. I love talking about it in an open form like this because people can hear it from us. But then again, you have the, the cherry picking. And with absolutely no time to catch your breath, here is Mr. Sinister Gates with his perspective of that very same journey. I don't want to dismiss what happened in his journey or, or, or anybody's with that type of stuff. I just want people to know if they're focused on getting whatever help they need or whatever art they're trying to exercise, it doesn't have to have gone down a psychedelic rabbit hole. I think for, for Matt, it's a different process than me. Um, what that helped me do is it, it gave me a new addiction <laughs> is what it did. And I became addicted to living outside my comfort zone. And um, I've repaired a, a lot of relationships. Um, we're a band that's always grown together, but, but there are certain things that you kind of leave on the table, a little scar tissue here, a little bit of trauma here that needs connecting with. It needs analysis and then it needs deployment of help, you know, and recovery. And that's what it helped me do. Um, having, having polarizing creatures in this band doesn't make everything easy all the time. We're very lucky that we love each other with all of our hearts, but it became very abundant that I needed to be a hundred percent happy. And I would not sacrifice, especially with kids and another kid coming on the way when I first uh, took this um, psychedelic, I needed to be the best father. And it started with me, best father, best husband, but I needed to be the best person to myself in the world getting chills thinking about it right now, speaking about it. Um, it's the same thing on a plane. You put your oxygen mask on first, and that's, and that's what I did. And over the last four or five years, I've been really focused on putting my own oxygen mask on first, and that's what it was for me. And so a byproduct of that was that I'm now closer with my band members. I'm closer with Matt, who's my brother, brother-in-law who lives around the corner. We all live around the corner from each other, but... Um, you know, I see that family all the time when I'm lucky. And so when things are as amazing as they are now, work and personal relationships meld in such a fucking amazing way. Good God, it's just, it's pure bliss. And however we needed to get there, we, we did get there. In the crack in the darkness, such air in the sky. A narrow moment when we found ourselves And all we occupy Return to the boundless Immerse in the free Letting go as you lose your name And all you know to be Well, you come back and there's no words And talk to Brian about this Because Brian came out and he couldn't talk for a good while he was just so grateful and he, and he was trying to relearn how to be a human. And one thing, cause we, we all did it. We didn't you know, do it together, do it individually, but we were doing the same session sort of thing. So like he would come out, he went, he went first, I think. Um, but so there's two things and one's very important. There's two types of DMT. There's NNDMT, 
which is the one where you go talk to machine elves and aliens and see all the colors, but you're still you. Then there's 5-MeO-DMT, which is toad venom. And that one is where it's complete disintegration of the ego. And this can be a very frightening thing if you have a type A personality, or it can be, you know, something that you just fall right into. And it's like you fall right back into home. There's no words that describe it. And what's interesting is when you're in there, and I say in there as being gone, as you're not even you, it's so hard to use the words because you're not you. Every word, every feeling, every concept, every idea is just instantly there. It's you're living in it. You're, you're, you're bathing in it. You are it. You're not separate from it. You're not this separate being that's kind of observing it. You are it. It's all you. And that's what they really mean by the oneness. And you feel like you're back to where you should have been. And as you come back as a human and you start remembering who you are in this life and all of the armor starts getting plated back on, I almost like felt like the third time I did it, I almost felt the armor coming back on. Like I was like, oh, this is the shell I live in. This is the shell. These are the things that I, I protect myself with. These are the things that help me navigate the way that this world wants you to work. But I was cognizant and aware of it. And that's why this stuff works because you come back and you're aware of your, your shortcomings. You're aware of the things that don't matter. And you're completely aware of the things that you do in your life that actually don't help you because you saw it all get broken apart and you saw yourself get put back together. And if you can remember that and you do, you can't explain it to someone else, but you can move forward in a much more positive, healthy light in, in my opinion. And that's why it's so um, impactful. That's a lot right there, but it's obviously a, it's, it was the most ex- significant experience the few times that I did it in my life. And that goes beyond anyone I've ever met in this life. I needed to work on myself first and see, learn more about myself before I could be a better parent, uh, husband, musician, friend, bandmate. I needed to do that for myself first before I could do any of the other stuff. I believe it can, for my experience, I can absolutely describe it because it was quicker than, than Matt's. That's for sure. He, that, that's an alpha male fucking hell of an ego that had to be destroyed. And it took more than one session for him. But what the biggest thing in the world, if I'm going to epitomize, or sorry, if I'm going to reduce it to one word, it's going to be gratitude. If I'm going to expound a touch, it's, it's being reborn. It was done by the expert process of having a shaman with me. I came in with an amazing mindset that I was um, into my journey of self-healing. I was into my journey of, re- of repairing relationships. When I told her what I was working on and what I wanted from it when she asked, I said, I just want um, maybe, if anything, to know that I'm on the right journey and and to maybe, uh, maybe not expedite the process, but elucidate the process, illuminate the process. So I took a little extra. She gave me a little extra or the full, full dose said that I was ready for it. Um, had a good vibe. I took a fucking gigantic hit of this thing and I was fucking gone. While this is happening, you're experiencing the most incredible emotions ever. I was crying like fucking bawling, crying, 
Um, and I, I get emotional talking about it, but extreme happiness, just so grateful, so happy when I saw water next to me and I didn't know what the fuck it was. And I was going through this concert, this plastic, plastic, what's that? It's made from something. It's here on earth. Is it the, and then all of a sudden water, I need water. When that hit me, I was like, my good God, I'm so fucking thankful that there actually is water there because I need it. Um, the gratitude for the simplest fucking things from the oxygen I breathe to obviously relationships and stuff like that. We have music theory with Sin on the way, but there's just a few things left to cover when it comes to all things nobody. And something that isn't mentioned very often is this next point. If you have ever been in the Death Bat Club Discord and ever run into the band there, you know they love you guys. If you listen to this show, the passion that the band have for their music and the sheer levels of thought and influence and creativity that goes into creating for this band is something that they are all incredibly passionate about. But they are also a band who have been living at the top of Rock's Mountain for the better part of 15 years. And this is the thing that doesn't get spoken about very much. And that's... A lot of bands who enjoy a lengthy period of sustained success begin to copy and paste their albums at this point in their career, be it chasing fans to pay them lip service with the McRiffs that they ordered or trading off of former glories because their present music isn't up to standards. It's just something that seems to happen to bands when they reach a certain level. And you've spent all of this time with us on this episode and you've heard nobody itself so you know that Avenged Sevenfold are doing anything but resting on their laurels so just where does the motivation to create come from at this point in their lives I think it comes down to how we create and one thing that's interesting um, we never sit down to to write that would mean that there's some sort of agenda or like time frame, right? Or you're just like, okay, guys, now we need to go create. And so what we do instead, which I think is interesting, is try to be bored. I tweet about this sometimes. Try to go on a walk. Don't put on a podcast. Live life. And when something interesting happens, take a note. And then you kind of can see where the parallels are musically, conceptually. And then when you have something like that, Try to write as many notes as you can that kind of will get you back to that feeling. Sometimes it's eight months later. Sometimes it's a year later. Maybe it's a week later. And if you can get yourself back in that mindset, then you're like pumped on this, trying to express this feeling, but trying to like get it to, for other people to understand it, right? Like you saw something or you, if it's a movie or just walking down the street and a dog looks weird or something, you know, like something gives you like this weird, like, oh, that's out of the ordinary. And if you can get enough of those ideas where they're truly unique and they make you feel something and you've done a good job of kind of funneling that into music or art or whatever it is, then you want to share it with the world. And it's art in the most purest form. 
And it's um, one of those things to where you don't have to sit there and grind and try to synthetically create those moments. If you just, if you're just aware during your everyday life, and that's kind of how we've been writing lately. And it takes the pressure off of, you know, create, create, create. And then at that point, you're just like, you're, you're, you're swimming in a sea of like, what are we doing? Like, what are we going for? And I think, and you never know where someone's going to go. And I think that's, what's so great, fascinating about art and the journey. I remember, you know, someone like Wes Lang and I would go into a studio and I would see all these things that what Wes Lang's known for. And then I'd come back like six months later and then all of a sudden there was color and like different things. And I was like thrown off. I was like, that's interesting for him, but that's not what I loved him for. And then I started really getting into that, right? The new stuff. And then, and if you want those paintings, they, they cost a pretty penny because there's only so many of them, but he's not going to do them again. He has no interest, right? And I've learned a lot from him in that process. And I've learned a lot from like looking at like, even like Kendrick Lamar reading or listening to his interviews. It's such a same sort of process where it's just like, you live life and you take notes. You live life, you take notes. You try to recreate feelings, take good notes. I mean, if you really break down nobody, how do you, how do you musically take somebody over into the other side, a side that they've never felt before? How do you take somebody home? That riff to me, if you, if you play that over and over, that, was, that could be the soundtrack to going over. But that soundtrack can't be done with a fucking boss pedal from Guitar Center or a Marshall. It's got to be manipulated in a way to make you feel something. And I think that's a perfect example of taking art, life, um, imagination, and then trying to put that down in audio form. We wait to feel the muse and not even musically, like lyrically. What, what, what do you want to convey out of a new album at this point in your life? It's not, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go back and write a teenage angst album when I'm fucking 38 years old and have a five-year-old son at home. Like that's just, it's not going to happen. So what, what's the music going to be so that there is still passion in the music? I think that's a point that I want everyone to realize is that this album is still full. The passion is there, man. The passion of music, passion of life, the passion of everything is still here in this, in this body of work. And I couldn't be more proud of, uh, the rest of the guys for putting it together. Um, uh, what they, what everyone did on this record is, I mean, God, we could have gotten so complacent over the last five years and just, you know, you look at what we've done, the things that we've already covered here on this podcast. Fuck, man, we could have done whatever the fuck we wanted and we decided to get passionate about music. So usually on tracks, we do discuss the song live and where it's been in the set lists and yada, yada, yada. Of course... That is not possible with nobody, but not only is that not possible, the band haven't quite reached rehearsal stage yet. So, with dates now on the horizon, I asked Brooks, how might nobody work live? And, uh, psst, who wants Avenged Sevenfold with an orchestra? If I had my druthers in a utopian world, I would hire the best orchestra per city that we go into just for the song Nobody. Unfortunately, we don't have an uh, unlimited budget, uh, so that's not going to happen. But I see it, you know, later down the road, how great would it be, you know, especially with all the songs that Avenge has had with orchestras, you know, Afterlife, Nobody, Roman Sky, you know, it would, you know, not to ride on Metallica's coattails, but, you know, we're 
completely different band. I, I think it would be great to to actually have that concert. So, but yeah, we're so we we start rehearsals in a couple weeks. Um, basically, going to figure that out. You know, as far as how we're going to pull it off, because I mean, just the soundscapes on this record. And I, you know, it's going to take time. I know Brian has been busy in his lab trying to figure out how to play his guitar parts. And so this is when it gets fun and interesting. And, and this is when tears happen. <laughs> so after all of that, who is excited for life is but a dream? I most certainly am, and you should be too. Hit subscribe if you're excited for June the 2nd, and thank you for being here with us on Tracks. This is the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast, and we leave you now with music theory with Mr. Sinister Gates. <laughs> Okay, music theory with Sin, and honestly, man, like, first time hearing this song and every time hearing it since, I've been like, where the fuck do we even start with this? Um, so with this, the lead riff being something that sounds so not of this earth, like, yeah. how is that riff played? You said it's like two notes. How is that riff played on, like, a human level to make an inhuman sound? Yeah, so... The, the most disappointing thing, the most disappointing news I've gotten in a, in a long time is when this song was, when I found out this song was in D minor. When we were playing it in the studio, I was like, no, it, it can't be in D minor. Everything we do is in D fucking minor. Everything we do. On this record, that's, that's definitely a little different. Um, but when you, you know, as you know, when you fucking down tune your guitar, you got drop D and you, that's, you write in that. It's, a, it's, it's what, what a lot of bands like us do but i thought that this was just some weird um aberration of a of a key that we were in but i tune the uh my low e string all the way down to a i i keep the same gauge as a 52 um not a thicker gauge for a seven or even an eight string guitar eight string would probably be getting down there um which leaves some sharpness there um if you thicken up the gauge it doesn't get it but anyway so I'm playing on the A fret, which is the fifth fifth fret, and I just didn't think about what key it is and any of this shit. So that's kind of an aside, but when I found out it was fucking D minor, I was like, God damn it, inescapable, inescapable. But that's that's pretty much how 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 I did it. And then I put um, some harmonizers uh, and some weird shit in a couple of different places that on a signal chain um, that they don't ever, ever go. <laughs> We speak about it throughout the episode, the fact that it's complex within that groove and like a simplistic idea. But some of the ideas are so far out of left field and the the fat bass sound that goes along with Matt in the Assi. Like, where does that come from? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it comes from all, all over the place. Like the, the vocal construct, we were trying to little too hard at first to like learning on piano and doing some shit. And so we just started singing like that parts me and Matt 
and we put together this thing at first that was, you know, a little bit more kind of us. But the minute it got to barbershop, it was like, okay, it's time to see, like get into some of those types of things. Um, that's very R and B. Um, and then it's a weird kind of a jazz Lydian, uh, sound for the last chord. I think it's a D D sharp Lydian. And so building that had to be done by ear. And so it's just kind of singing all these different textures. This I had to, I had to fake the funk in the studio as well. And, and add those parts, we just built it. And I grew up, I was a huge boys to men fan. Um, I like take six. So that's the jazz version of boys to men singing just gnarly. Some of the gnarliest harmony perfectly in tune all over the place. The craziest jazz chords you've ever heard all done acapella vocally. Um, so again, it's not outside of our wheelhouse. That's shit we grew up listening to. So to build that, um, as opposed to just write the perfect things on keyboard and then just plug in the fucking thing. No, we just fucking built it by singing it. Whether it's Brooks's uh, wilding out as the solo starts, Johnny has a has a bit where the bass kind of lifts in the mix and is really impressive with things. We've spoken about Matt and yourself, like to be able to create something around this riff that still has that intricate solo in. Yeah, what do you think it says about your band musically in 2023? Um, well, well, personally. I think we all feel this way. I can only speak for myself. I, I just feel capable. I mean, I'm so grateful for being capable as a band to do whatever the fuck we want to do. It, there wasn't a point, save one thing. Um, and I'm going to tell you a funny story. I can't believe I almost forgot to tell you. I have, I have the Frankenstein monstrosity right here. It was the only failure on this record. Everything else was a fucking victory. Everything else, if we had the vision, it might have been a little different, but it always at least ended up better and not a, an epic fail. So this solo was originally um, going to be a violin solo, and we were going to fucking find like an incredible YouTube star violinist that did different tricks and techniques, and we found him. I forget the name of him. Um, but then as time progressed, because it's one of the first things that, that we wrote years ago, uh, I kind of had an an idea and I brought it to the band. I'm like, you know, the song doesn't have a solo. I don't care if a song has a solo or doesn't, but I'd like to recreate this violin solo. Little ego involved. I'm not going to lie. I don't do many things ego based, but I, it, it, it kind of, it fucked with me, but I wouldn't have done it until I had this idea of developing this crazy contraption that would let me play guitar like a violinist. It's right behind me. Let me go grab it real fast. <laughs> For everyone listening, the, the, the headphones are off and Sin is rummaging in the background here. There, there is what looks like a fretless guitar turning up. It's a fretless. So it's an eight-string fretless, headless guitar. And for all of you here, and, but this string right here, 
which was a high yeah. E, is like a banjo A. So this is essentially a seven-string guitar. Gets low into the seven-string sort of thing, because I was going to, um, with the solo, I have to have the, the E string intact while I play this. So I was thinking about this two years ago. This took, this took a year to develop. This very low seven-string seven sort of element right here. Um, is strung as an E string, normal E string that goes down to the A, and the another E string is intact for when I play the solo. And then to get the range of the violin, I added this A string, um, and it was it's it's very delicate. And luckily, because it would have to be reworked for mass production, so I go in and I start playing the solo because the first part of it is literally the the violins thing, and I evolve it and it sounds like the cheapest cheesiest fucking slide guitar you ever heard <laughs> absolutely ruined the part it definitely fucked the genre it was too much too much different genres fucking with each other yeah and so the band is just like dude just play a fucking solo over So it, it broke my heart that I picked up my normal guitar and to play a neoclassical-ish sort of solo just to start with because it wasn't ever going to be that. I was never just going to fucking settle for it. As I started to build it, the band's response to it was incredible. fucking hated it i hated the solo that you hear for for weeks um but that's but lucky for us i knew that i had time this was two years ago um i did i recorded that solo um a year and a half ago almost two years ago i was like i got time to change i'll i'll figure this fucking thing out um i came back to it i'm like yep that's uh that's a keeper the song is so different it actually anchors it organically now too because it's so fucking out of control. It doesn't have to be wacky on top of wacky. So anyway, that's uh, the monstrosity laying there on the floor right there. Uh, <laughs> failure. <laughs> and that is it from us. We are Tracks, the official Event Sevenfold podcast. You just heard all of the members of the band. I've been your host, Bees. You've been really great, and we will see you for much, much more on the road to the release of Life is But a Dream out on June 2nd. Subscribe to the podcast, pre-order your album, and we'll see you next time. Peace!